0: Heavenly Father, our Lord, now as we turn to your word, we ask for your help. Spirit, would you open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to receive the word that is sweeter than honey. May your commands, Lord, give us great joy. May we find the, the joy that is in walking in obedience and righteousness with you. And may you fill us with all wonder and delight as we behold Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. When was the last time that you read the fine print of a contract or an agreement? How frequently do you, when something pops up online that says you must agree to the terms and conditions to receive this or for this new service, how frequently do you actually read those terms and conditions? After the first service, I had someone who came up to me and said, it's actually my job to read those terms and conditions. We can all pray for her. But if we're honest, oftentimes we opt in to those kinds of things without reading the fine print, without reading the terms and conditions. And In academic writing or in some books, we find footnotes and endnotes that often are places that we jam in certain things that may not be central to the argument, and yet they're still important. Or it's like, you know, it's kind of like, I need to say this, you know, for certain purposes, it's true, it's accurate, but it's not necessarily central. And the fine print oftentimes includes similar things. Well, in today's text, we come to one of those passages that we're tempted to include as part of the fine print. We're tempted to just jam this into a footnote. It's true. Jesus said it, so we have to include it somewhere, except it it would feel a little bit better if it was just in a footnote. Christianity would be far more tolerable if we didn't have some of these statements From Jesus, it would be far more accessible. So let's put this in the fine print and kind of leave it alone. Well, today my goal is to take a magnifying glass to the fine print. Today I want to show that what is we might be tempted to put in the footnotes really belongs in the main argument. This is not something for the end of the book, assuming no one will read. No, we need to make sure that these things are clear. Because if we miss it, we can really miss what it means to follow Jesus. If Jesus offers us, if he accomplishes his mission with resolute focus, he is resolute to accomplish his mission, then following Jesus entails resolute devotion. Turn to Luke chapter 9, in verses 51 through 62. If you don't have a Bible, one of our hosts will gladly provide one for you. Luke 9, verses 51 through 62. Sixty-two. The, if you're new to looking at a Bible, the big numbers there are chapter numbers. The small numbers are verse numbers. So Luke nine, verse. 51 is where we'll be. We're, we're ending our series in the Gospel of Luke called, Who Do You Say That I Am? We've spent this these last several months asking ourselves the question about the identity of Jesus. And The, the next couple of weeks are, are unique services as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of Word Christian School. And then a, 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 an installation service as we celebrate that really as a whole church family what God's doing here. And then after that, we're going to start a series on the, the legacy of the gospel or gospel legacy in uh, 2 Timothy. And then we're um, eventually we'll get back to what it means to follow Jesus sometime next year in the gospel of Luke. Well, on Easter Sunday, we reach the pinnacle of our series when Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ of God. That's his identity. But Luke 9:51 now makes this turn, not just about the identity of Jesus, but the mission of Jesus. Turn with or stand with me as I in honor of the reading of God's word as I read from Luke 9, verse 51 through 62. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, "'Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them?' But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, "'I will follow you wherever you go.' And Jesus said to him, "'Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head.' To another he said, "'Follow me.' But he said, "'Lord, let me first go and bury my father.' And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. At my home, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is God's word. You may be seated. So our main idea today, you'll notice on the back of your worship program, our main idea is that Jesus was resolute to accomplish his mission and following Jesus entails a resolute devotion. Jesus was resolute to accomplish his mission. So following Jesus entails resolute devotion. For our outline, I'm simply going to explain those two sentences. And then in the third or the second uh, section, the second sentence, I'll include three realities for following Christ. But first, Jesus was resolute to accomplish his mission. Verse 51 demonstrates that Jesus was intentionally focused on getting to Jerusalem. Look at this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Have you ever met anybody who was determined? You could see it in their eyes that they were focused, they knew exactly what they wanted to do or what they wanted to do with their life. They had vision and direction. Well, that person looks distracted compared to Jesus here. Jesus is intentional to get to Jerusalem. He sets his face to go there in chapter nine, Jesus twice predicted his death. First in 922, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then in verse 44, Jesus says this to his disciples, "Let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Pastor Dave did a phenomenal job with that. But I love that phrase. Let these words sink into your ears. When Jesus looks at his disciples and he he foreshadows, he predicts his death, he wants them to understand it. He wants them to realize that this is central to who he is. And these days are now fast approaching. Some translations say that as time approached for him to be taken up, to heaven, and he was being taken up to heaven. Eventually, that was his uh, goal: was to go back to the Father, to ascend back in the Father. But that only came through the exit by the byway of the cross and resurrection to get to his final destination of the ascension. That taken up included his death and resurrection from the grave. Jesus knew exactly what awaited him in Jerusalem, yet he still sets his face to get there. He's resolute to go. The Christian Standard Bible says he was determined to journey to Jerusalem. And he's determined to go there because he knows by going there, he's seeking to accomplish his mission. Now that phrase also included there is, is drew near. As the days drew near, that, that uh, could be translated as fulfilled. The events that waited in Jerusalem, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, those were promised, foreshadowed, prophesied in Scripture. Later on in Luke 24, after Jesus' death and resurrection, prior to his ascension, he said this to his disciples, Luke 24, verse 44. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that for repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus tells his disciples, everything in the Old Testament is leading to me. And just as an aside, it's a good reminder as we read our our Old Testaments, we read with an eye fixed on Jesus. The Old Testament, friends, is Christian scripture. It's meant for us to behold. And and it's it's kind of like we're reading the the early parts of a a story. And yet we're still waiting for the culmination. And Jesus is saying, I'm the culmination. Everything must be fulfilled. And as those days for that fulfillment drew near, Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jesus is this servant of the Lord that is described in in Isaiah. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, it it describes this servant who says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who would pull up my beard. He's talking about suffering, persecution here. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. That servant of the Lord had his face set, had direction. He knew where he was going. And that's Jesus as that servant. This was always part of the divine plan and sovereignty of God. In that famous servant song in Isaiah 53, we find in Isaiah 53, verse 10, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Father, Has put him to grief. It was always the plan of God. The death and resurrection of Jesus was always part of the plan of God. That was how the scriptures must be fulfilled, which is why Peter can say in his sermon in Acts 2 that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus' death and resurrection was no just mere possibility. It was the fulfillment of all that was promised. Jesus goes, he sets his face to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, and then ascend to the Father. All under the sovereignty of God. Jesus goes to die in the place of sinners. He sets his face to accomplish his mission. But as he sets out in verses 52 through 53, he passes through this village of Samaritans. And these Samaritans did not receive him, notice, because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Now the animosity of Jews and Samaritans is well documented. During the the Jewish exile to Babylon, there were some who remained in the land. And those people who remained in the land intermarried with the nations that were there. And they became the Samaritan People. So the purebred Jews looked at Samaritans as like half-breed people. They, they, there was mutual hatred. The Samaritans worshipped in a region north of Jerusalem in, uh, on a mountain called Gerizim, whereas the Jews worshipped at Mount Zion in Jerusalem. There, there, was, there was animosity. It was reciprocal hatred that these two groups of people had for one another. So, he's not received. There's no place for him to stay. There's no hospitality. They they, they put shame on Jesus as he's trying to pass through. So then in verse 54, we find that some of Jesus' disciples have an idea of how to deal with this kind of disrespect that they've shown Jesus. He's simply looking for a place to, to eat and rest. And this Samaritan village puts him out. Move on. So, verse 54 James and John have an idea. They say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That seems like a bit of an overstatement. Should we let fire come down and consume them? Now, that feels like an overstatement, but put yourself again in in the situation of James and John. John. James and John had collectively confessed with the other disciples that Jesus was the Christ of God. He's the Messiah. He's the one who's going to make all things right to fulfill God's promises. James and John had seen the transfiguration. So they know exactly who he is. And so seeing the transfiguration and Elijah was there. They want to call down Elijah-like fire to judge those who have rejected the Christ. Because those who reject the Christ always have judgment coming. That's true. Those who reject the Christ always have judgment coming. And to to liken this to Elijah is is quite real. Elijah is the one who who calls down fire from heaven to judge his enemies and to prove who the true God is several times. We have two examples of this. The first is is the famous passage in in 1 Kings chapter 18. This is Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah has this, this, this God contest, so to speak where the prophets of Baal build this altar. They, they dance all around it. They're trying to get their God to consume, this fire, or to consume this altar with fire from heaven. So they're trying to appease the gods, and, and nothing's happening. Elijah mocks them, and he goes, Ah, oh, Maybe your God's asleep. He's taking a nap. Maybe your God's going to the bathroom. Nothing's happening. But Elijah then builds an altar. But not only does he build an altar... He soaks this thing. You ever tried to burn wet wood when you're camping or out back? It just creates a lot of smoke. But, but Elijah smokes this or, or wets this, um, this, this wood. He, he builds a trench all around it. And, and there's so much water that's overcoming this altar that it fills the trench. But then God or Elijah says to God, Lord, prove yourself. And in a moment, that altar is in hot flames. Because God is the true God. Elijah calls down fire from heaven so that God can prove himself that he is true. The other story of Elijah calling down fire from heaven is in 2 Kings chapter 1. 2 Kings chapter 1. And that's even probably more the context of what uh, James and John are thinking of here. 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah speaks out against the king of Samaria. No accident here. He's speaking out against the king of Samaria. So the king sends a, a, a captain and 50 men to go get Elijah. And he does this a couple of times. And this, this company of men go out to get Elijah. And they say, Come down, O oh man of God. And he says, If I'm a man of God, he's going to send fire down right now and consume you. And he does the fire that came down on those Samaritans in that day in Elijah's day was the same kind of fire that James and John wanted to call down because these people had blasphemed the Christ. They had ignition. They were simply trying to defend Jesus' honor, Jesus' name and fame. So they sought judgment on those who rejected. Let me ask, do you feel any kind of solidarity with James and John? Do you see yourself there at all? Do you look at our society and ever think, Lord, bring down the fire. Bring judgment. Don't you see how they celebrate sin? Don't you see or hear how they blaspheme your name? Ever thought we shouldn't even be nice to these people? Someone needs to stand up to them. Lord, send these people straight to hell. Maybe you never thought that or said it out loud, but maybe you've thought that in your mind. We might think that Jesus would defend his own honor. That he'd say to James and John, yeah, you're right. They are blaspheming me. They are rejecting the Christ. They do deserve judgment. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, bring down the hammer. Look at verse 55. It says, Jesus, but he turned and rebuked them. Who's the them that Jesus is rebuking? I think it's obvious that it's James and John. Jesus turns and rebukes those who would want to defend his honor, name, and fame. Why? Why? Doesn't this seem like another kind of overreaction? Jesus, they're just trying to help. Well, I think there's a couple reasons why Jesus would rebuke them. First, only God dishes out judgment. Only God dishes out judgment. And secondly, and maybe more importantly, why would Jesus say that it's wrong to call down fire from heaven To judge these people? Because remember, Jesus has his face set on Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus has his face set on Jerusalem to bear the very wrath that those Samaritans deserved. Jesus knows that going to the cross, that the wrath of the Father is about to be poured out completely on him. So to call down wrath too soon would mean that there's no substitute. Jesus bears all of the wrath that everyone in our society deserves. Everyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord. Everyone who curses Christ and rejects the Christ of God. Jesus goes to bear the wrath that they deserve. And friends, that's not just outside the doors. It's every one of us. Jesus takes our place. He takes the fire so that we can extend grace. Friends, how easily do we forget the gospel? Do we think that our coming to Christ, our trust in him, is just because we're smarter than our neighbors? Do we think so wrongly that, well, there's grace for me, but judgment for them? Have we forgotten that apart from a work of the Spirit and grace in our own hearts that we too are objects of wrath? That we deserve that fire from heaven for rejecting the Christ? Yes, sinful things in our culture will frustrate us. It could even lead to to indignation. But that frustration cannot lead to a lack of concern or compassion on the lost. See, if we confess that we are saved by by faith alone and Christ alone through grace alone, we confess that kind of gospel doctrine. That gospel doctrine must create a gospel culture in our lives. Rosaria, Rosaria Butterfield tells of her conversion. She was a former lesbian and professor of women's studies advocating for feminist and LGBTQ philosophy. She uh, tells of her story in her book, her autobiography, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. A wonderful read. But she was converted as she was befriended by a reformed pastor who took her questions seriously. And over time, as she heard the gospel, she finally trusted Christ. She tells that, yes, her sins were great. She had many sins. And yet her greatest sin was the sin of unbelief. Friends, the greatest sin going on in our culture right now is a lack of trust, a lack of faith in Jesus the Christ. As she trusted Christ, she was changed completely. So yes, friends, we shake our heads in bewilderment in our culture, but we never shake our fists at them. For it is God alone who judges. And our responsibility is with both compassion and conviction to speak the truth of the gospel who took all the wrath on the cross for us sinners. And that the only way we were saved, that we are saved, is through faith in Jesus Christ alone and repentance of sin. One of my favorite quotes from Charles Spurgeon is this. He says, if sinners be damned at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unworn and unprayed for. See, the reality is that judgment's coming. And friends, if if that leads to arrogance in our lives, oh, may it never be. May that always lead to compassion for the lost and to reminder that apart from Christ and his spirit working in our hearts, that we too have that judgment coming. Friends, may we be the kind of church that has both compassion and conviction that says Jesus has bore all the wrath, all the hellfire so that we might be restored in grace. True following of Jesus is not calling down judgment, but it's walking with a cross. This is a difficult perspective to have, but Jesus now, in, in these interactions with these would-be disciples, he, he clarifies what the realities of truly following Jesus. As he begins this journey, he interacts with three prospective followers, and, and as we see these realities for following Christ, it helps us have this perspective In life, Jesus is resolute to accomplish his mission. So secondly, following Jesus entails a resolute devotion, resolute devotion. As Jesus begins this journey, he encounters these potential disciples and in these interactions clarify the reality of following Jesus. Some of your Bibles might actually include a heading, a part of this section beginning in verse 57 that says the cost of following Jesus. Now, those headings in our Bibles are not divinely inspired and yet they are often helpful to summarize maybe the big idea of the point of that paragraph. And I think this is a, a helpful one at that. So and when I say that following Jesus entails resolute devotion, what I'm trying to communicate is that resolute, resolute devotion is natural to following Jesus. This isn't an, op- an, an option uh, as part of, you know, some kind of subscription package. Resolute devotion is what it means to follow Jesus. This is not something that we just, it's not additional. It's an implied and logical conclusion. This is truly following Christ. Now, in a society like ours where Christian faith is often so normal, normalized, we, we lose the, the reality sometimes, we lose the sense of what it means to, to count the cost, to follow Jesus. Many of us have, have grown up in Christian homes by, by his grace and as a gift, so we really don't know much other than following Jesus. We've seen our parents, we've, we've been part of churches our entire lives where, where Christian faith was, was normalized, and, and we embraced that for ourselves as well. Others, though, ha, have seen significant cost and challenge in coming to Christ. Maybe for some of you, your, your faith in Jesus felt to, to your family that you were rejecting them. That's true in many cultures. That, that, that trusting in Jesus alone for salvation has, has, came at great cost. Maybe cost a job. Maybe cost relationships. Maybe cost some security. See, in the early church, there's actually evidence that, that they took time to examine somebody's faith and, and their confession and the fruit of their lives before they even baptized them. Because, you know, now we would think, well, you have this newfangled faith. Why wouldn't you just want anybody the reason they wouldn't just want anybody is because they wanted to make sure somebody had count the cost before coming. That they knew what it meant to follow Jesus, that this could really cost them in their life. Actually, just this week, a friend of mine who's a missionary in Western Asia. And when you use regional terms to talk about where somebody's serving, oftentimes it means that that's a difficult place for them to serve, for Christians. And this friend of mine, she and her husband, who's an who's Afghan, are working with Afghan refugees she tells a story of this, of this friend of hers, this young Afghan refugee who just recently trusted Christ. And at her baptism, when my friend baptized her, before she dunked her under the water, she said, Are you willing to follow Jesus, even if it costs you your life? Why don't we say that in the baptism pool? Are we willing to say that for many people in our society, many people in our world, that is true. That to follow Jesus could be to renounce everything about a former way of life. Because Jesus is so much better. So now as we look at these realities of following Jesus, again we're taking the magnifying glass to the fine print. We're taking the footnotes and putting an essential part of the argument, And as we consider these three realities, it'll help us walk faithfully with Jesus. And young people, hear me, young people especially, where you feel like you have a lot to gain still in this world. You need to hear these realities. Because if you aren't anchored in these kinds of realities, if you don't understand the reality of what it means to trust in Jesus, I have no, re- I have no idea why you would stay with him. It's costly. It's not easy. It's right. It's joyful. But it's not easy. And Jesus communicates that now. First reality for following Jesus. Number one, following Jesus means we will feel homeless in the world. We will feel homeless in this world. Verse 57, someone comes to Jesus. He says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Oh, great. Great. This eager beaver is ready to follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't respond though, with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He says this Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What a reception to that altar call! Daryl Bach explains that a disciple of Jesus must realize that following him means li- living as a stranger in the world, because a choice for Jesus is a choice rejected by many in the world. He says to be a disciple takes resolve, resolve. To follow Jesus means we will feel homeless in this world. How frequently do you pass? Do we do we pass by panhandlers on the street? We don't know anything about their background. We don't know anything about their circumstances. Usually, and yet we just kind of pass by. Oftentimes, we we might feel sorry. We might feel compassion. But what if their life right now, what they're living, is a better picture for what it means to follow Jesus than to have a mortgage and a white picket fence? Peter, in his letter, addresses the church as strangers and exiles, strangers and aliens. What a title. What an identity. See, part of our struggle as Christians in America is that we have felt pretty much at home. There's been widespread freedom, acceptance, and even lots of Christian influence. And I I celebrate all those things. I think this can be very good for society, yet it's led us maybe to be more comfortable than what we should be in this world. Now, don't misunderstand me. I think those things are good for society. Religious freedom, Christian influence, yet... Our following of Jesus cannot be determined on how whether, whether or not it's comfortable for us and our society. We are a peculiar people. We are citizens of a heavenly city living out of a suitcase. Living out of a suitcase, you never quite feel settled. And for the Christian, that's our reality. But even with our hom- even if we're homeless, we do good to those around us. We pray for our government leaders. We pay our taxes. We live peaceful and quiet lives so that we give no reason to be punished as evildoers. Now, this may trouble you. This may take time to settle in. But friends, if America falls, the church of Jesus Christ will stand. Think about this. In the early centuries of the church... Think about those Christians who had trusted Jesus and were building the church of Jesus Christ from the catacombs of Rome, underneath the city. Who would ever think that the church of the catacombs would outlast the throne of Caesar? Maybe a movement that God was completely behind. Friends, reality following Jesus is that we will feel homeless in this world, and yet, as pilgrims, We await that city that's that's coming for us. Second reality, following Jesus demands an urgent response. Following Jesus demands an urgent response. In verse 59, Jesus actually invites somebody to follow him, and he says, follow me. How great a phrase, but how weighty a cost. The man responds, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, this seems like a reasonable request, but it's difficult for us to know precisely what he's asking for. It's unlikely that this man's dad is already dead. The man is probably wanting to be a a respectful son and and wait for his aging father to die so that he can do the right duty of a son. Or he's waiting for his inheritance and he needs his father to die prior to that. But the circumstances of this man are less important than his delay and his priority. When Jesus says, follow, and this guy says, well, let me go do this first. That sounds very different than when God calls Isaiah, who will go? And Isaiah says, I will go, send me. Jesus responds in verse 60, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, this feels, again, like an extreme overreaction. The man's not asking for anything crazy, so possibly wanting to be respectful to his father. But the point is, this is delayed discipleship. This is delayed response because there is something more important than physical death. Spiritual death. This message is far more urgent than anything else. See, friends, we talk about the reality that judgment's coming for those who re- reject Jesus. That is true. So why delay responding to him in faith? This, this man's kind of like the parable that Jesus tells later in Luke chapter 12 of the rich man who wants to get, build more barns so all of his wealth can be stored in those barns. And he ends this by God saying to this fool, fool, your life tonight is required of you. Do not delay following Jesus. Friends, this is admittedly a difficult Concept, But let me ask, what excuse, even good excuse, do you have to delay responding to Christ? Non-Christian friend, judgment is real. Do not delay. This response is urgent. Jesus reorders our priorities so that even the most important of relationships are secondary compared To him. Respond. We also need to see the urgency of this response as we think about the connection between following Jesus and proclaiming Jesus. West Nottingham, one of our pastoral pastoral residents, said it well. He says, God's call to come and follow is a call to go and spread. Every follower of Jesus is now responsible to go and proclaim the kingdom of God as as Jesus says to this man, follow me. No, go and spread. Do you see that proclaiming is part of following? Who are the people that you're burdened for? Any of those people that you might wish that hellfire would come down on. Maybe those are the very people that you need to pray most for in your life. Maybe those are the very people that God has put you there to share the good news of the gospel with. What are we allowing with earthly things, even meaningful relationships, to get in our way of God's call to mission? See, we can say two things simultaneously. We can say that the Bible tells us to honor our fathers and mothers, to to take care of our immediate family members. And we could say that there's, there's a need of wisdom, of a time to go and a time not to, but parents, can I say something specifically to you? Is it possible, parents and grandparents, that we are the biggest hindrance in our kids and grandkids going to the nations? Dave Giles, the, who was with us last month, outgoing director of Compass World Partners, he said this, he goes, a lot of parents and grandparents want to say to their kids, I want you to love Jesus. I want you to love the church. And I want you to do it right next door. Friends, part of the cost of going to missions is a lot of missed holidays. It's a lot of missed birthdays. There's a lot of missed funerals. But eternity is a long time. Eternity is a long time to spend with the joy of those relationships that give us most joy now. But to forsake something now is, is to await an even greater good later. Jesus says in Matthew 19: Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or land for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. See, both staying and going are part of obedience but is there anything holding you back? And are are we part of a culture here in our church that is asking that the Lord would raise up workers from us? Maybe some of our own kids and grandkids that we would send out to the most difficult places because the need of the gospel is so urgent. It's an urgent call. Finally, Following Jesus requires intentional focus. Third potential disciple comes and says, I will follow you, Lord, but but let me first say farewell to those at my home. This again seems like a, a reasonable request. But Jesus responds, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying following Jesus requires intentional focus. There's no looking back. Looking back in the Bible is always a bad thing. One commentator draws out two examples. The first is Lot's wife from from Genesis 19. Lot and his family are being rescued from the wrath that is coming down on Sodom. They're they're being restored. They're being brought out of, of a place that's experienced judgment. But Lot's wife turns. And rather than looking at the joy of salvation set before her, she turns back and longs for her former way of life. And God judges. The other example is the people of Israel. They had been brought out of Egypt. Imagine all that that generation saw. They saw all these plagues against the gods of Egypt. They had been redeemed, re- restored out of Egypt because of the blood of the Lamb through the Passover. Passover. They got to the edge of the waters of the Red Sea as they were about to be killed, and the, the sea was pulled back and then brought back over the Egyptians who pursued them. And then in Exodus 16, they see all of those things and they say to Moses, when their bellies are, are grumbling, they say, We wish we would have stayed back. We'd have rather died there. See, brothers and sisters, are are are, are our priorities out of order? When we think about following Jesus, are we simply looking back at what we're leaving behind and not enough of what we're gaining? What we're seeking ahead of us? Is Jesus worth that to you? See, following Jesus entails resolute devotion. We may feel homeless for a time. The gospel is urgent. We only have now to respond and the focus that's needed is intentional. It's purposeful. So, you've been asking yourself this question over the last several months Who is Jesus? He's the Christ. What do you accomplish? His face is set to accomplish his mission that he was put on earth to do, to die in the place of sinners. How will we respond? If we didn't have chapter and verse breaks in our Bibles, this would go right into Luke chapter 10 that talks about Jesus sending the 72 to go and proclaim all of his goodness. Are we those people who are responding to the call? Are we counting the cost and saying because of what Jesus has done, it is worth it, that we're focused on him because of what he's done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful. And we ask, Lord, that through your Spirit, you would give us that kind of hope and joy that we would see, because of what Christ accomplished on the cross for us sinners, that we can live as reconcilers for those who proclaim it. Lord, for those of us who suffer and who following Jesus comes at great cost now, we pray for perseverance, for hope, and that you would keep us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.